Well, once again, I want to welcome you here, and if uh, we're in this teaching series, we're going through the book of Esther, and so if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to open that up to Esther chapter 2 this morning. It's kind of where we're going to be for most of the morning. If, you, if you're online, yeah, I think you can use the, uh, there's, a, there's a Bible aspect of the online campus there. You might be able to open up Esther chapter 2 and have that on the window next to you. If you're here in person and you need a Bible uh, that you want to use, we've got a couple of them in the back on those tables. You can grab one of those, uh, as well as those journals that we're using for sermon notes and questions along the way. You won't offend me if you want to jump up in the middle of it and go grab a sermon note or a, a journal or a pen and a, a Bible. I'd love to have you with that. But we're reading through the book of Esther uh, and seeing what we can learn about how do we remain faithful to the call of God in our life when we live in a world that is driven by ethics that are contrary to the will of God. How do we live? How do we, how do we move? How do we do what God would have us to do? And I hope this past week that you had an opportunity to read through the book of Esther. All 10 chapters. I hope that during this past week you had an opportunity, whether you broke it up a couple chapters a day or just in one sitting, that you would have read the book of Esther throughout and be able to get yourself immersed into the story. And one of the writer's purposes in writing the way he does is to, is to kind of draw us into the narrative, to kind of feel what the, the people are feeling, to experience the emotions, to experience all that's going along. So I hope that you had an opportunity to read through it. Like I said, we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. Uh, and like we did last week and like we'll more than likely do in the weeks to come. I'm going to read the entire chapter 2 and we'll stop along the way, kind of make some comments and see if we can uh, understand to learn some things together. Maybe if you're writing or or journaling or or even highlighting in your Bible along the way, that would be really helpful to us. Uh, But before we jump in, let me pray for us and we'll see what God will teach us uh, through Esther chapter 2. Jesus, we come before you in your holy scripture. And we ask that uh, you would teach us, that we would be your students, that you would be our teacher, and that what you would have us to learn and to observe and to consider about life in your kingdom, that you would draw it to the surface, that you would draw our minds to that, that we may be different as a result of encountering your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to jump right in because we got a lot to kind of cover this morning. So Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we'll see where we can learn from. Later, when King Xerxes' fury, ha- oh, sorry, time out. You remember, if you weren't here last week, let me give you a real quick thing. Xerxes uh, had this big party going on for 180 days, showing off of how powerful he is, and then he wanted to send, bring his wife to parade her in front of other people. Vashti didn't really like that very much. She refused. Xerxes got a little torqued off, a little embarrassed, and he banished her, right? Pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So hang on, what's going on here, right? Some time has passed between chapter 1 and chapter 2. That's why the the writer says, later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided. And sometimes when you read the Bible, and you read after one page, and you just turn the page, you keep going, you forget that time may have happened. 
that things happened and then maybe uh, like two days later or a week later or something. But sometime later between chapter 1 and chapter 2 has surpassed. Some time has gone by. We don't know exactly how much time, but history would tell us it probably has been more than just a day or two. It's probably been a couple of years. And it gives, gives us a couple little hints here because in Esther chapter 1, I think it's in verse 3. Someone can check me on it. But Esther chapter 1 verse 3, it says us that in the third year of King Xerxes' reign, he throws this big party. In the third year of his reign, this big party happens. And later in Esther chapter 2, we'll find out that Esther is brought to the king's court, he's brought into in the seventh year of his reign. So some time has passed on between chapter 1 and chapter 2, more than just a couple of days. It's probably been a couple of years. And history, if we look at the, the history books, we would tell us that Xerxes has probably been going out to battle and going out to war during this year, couple of year span, more than likely against Greece. More than likely against Greece. And when those wars had concluded, when that time had happened, had stopped, and, and Xerxes finally has the time to catch his breath, kind of calm down a little bit, the, the dust settles and all that's going on, and he remembers back a couple years ago, and he remembers his wife. He remembers Vashti. And here you get a little sense in Xerxes, you get a little sense of regret of what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And who among us don't know the feeling of regret when we act out of our anger or we act out of our emotions or we act out of some other thing and when the dust settles and you think back of what happened and you go, man, I was a jerk. I was a jerk. I mean, all of us, I would imagine, can think of a time in your life when you have behaved or you spoke or you did something in the heat of the moment and then when the dust settles and your emotions are a little more calm and you think back on it and there's some regret. Man, I was a jerk to that person. Well, Xerxes is having a moment of regret. And his attendants notice that his demeanor has changed. His face is a little downcast and they propose, well, let's find you a new wife. Let's find a wife for you. Now, some people have made this out, this suggestion by his attendants to make it out completely and explicitly and only about sexual desire and sexual conquest. That, that you know, we know what will cheer you up, Xerxes. Let's go find all these beautiful young virgins and we just come and parade them before you. You can have as much desire and much pleasure as you ever want. Let's just kind of mask over the pain for you. But I, I think that there's something more to that. Uh, certainly that kind of desire and that kind of full latitude for whatever sexual desire you may want, that was part of the culture, that was part of it, but I think there's more to the story here with Xerxes. There's more to the story. Because Xerxes, we're told, already had a harem. He already had uh, pleasure at his disposal. He already had as much as that as he would ever want. What he was missing was a wife. He was missing the companionship. He was missing someone to do life with. He was lonely. And so the attendants come up with a plan, not just to, to kind of stockpile some more women in his harem, but to find a wife, to find a companion. They come up with this plan to go find someone. And he agrees, and so we go from there. All right, back at it. Verse 5, I think, is where we are. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. 
among those taken captive when Jehoiachin, king of Judah. When Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother, this young woman, who was also called Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here we are introduced to Esther. Hadassah, but her name is Esther. And we are told that she's an orphan. And she's being raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And he's taken initiative to care for his young cousin. And I can't help but think and be reminded as I read through the story, I can't help but think and be reminded of the value that we have at crossroads of intergenerational living, of pouring our life into the life of someone who's younger than us, chronologically or spiritually younger than us, and the important role that that plays in the life of, of a young person as they're growing up. Mordecai cares for his young cousin who's orphaned. And we'll see as the, as the story goes on that there's more to that relationship, that it's more than just the one or two times, but it's a real caring that he has for them, for her. And for those of you, just to tell you, for those of you who work with children and youth, whether it's here in, at, at the church or you're a teacher, you're a coach, or you're a part of our Learning Tree staff, I can't overstate enough the important role that you play in the lives of our children and the lives of our young people. To build their character to develop who they are, to pour your life into the life of a young person. And I don't say that simply because I have children and I have young people. But as we will see in the story, as the story of Esther unfolds, this commitment that Mordecai has to care for his younger cousin, to pour his life into her, plays a significant role in her story, in her shaping of who she is, but it also has a significant role to play in the story of the people of Israel. Pouring your life into a young person is an important role. It's an aspect of, of learning to follow the ways of Jesus, as we'll see in the story. So back into the story. Verse 8 is where we are. The king's order and edict had been proclaimed. Many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So understand what's happening here in the story for a second. These women, all around the Persian Empire, are taken forcefully away from their families and taken to the king's palace to serve in the harem. Exclusively, the harem is used almost exclusively for his sexual desires. These women are forcefully taken from their families and then shipped all the way from this vast Persian Empire, shipped to Susa, where they will spend the rest of their lives in the service of the king in his harem. It's a horrible, tragic thing that happens in the lives of these women. And sometimes when you read this story, sometimes we, we grew up watching the story on Veggie Tales, or we read it in the stories in, in Sunday school with flannel graphs, and we see the story, we hear about it, and we think about it more like a Disney fairy tale. The young orphan girl, and then she becomes queen. Isn't that a wonderful, nice little story? It does have a good ending. Not to spoil the thing. It does have a good ending. 
but it follows a horrible path with tragedy all around. It's not a, a Pollyanna kind of fairy tale. There's all sorts of tragedy in the midst of it, which reminds us of an important truth to keep in, in mind. How often our lives are interrupted and disrupted by the plans and by the actions of other people that we have no control over. How often our lives and our plans are disrupted by other people and their plans and their actions that we have no control over. Friends, if, if 2020 has taught us anything, right, is that our lives and our plans can be utterly disrupted by other things outside of our control. Outside of our control. So the question for us, if that's a reality, the question for us is, how will we respond when our lives are utterly disrupted by people or decisions or things that are completely outside of our control? How will we respond to people in, in situations and circumstances that happen in our lives that are completely out of our control but completely upend our life and disrupt our life? See, Esther is one of those who is completely uprooted from her family, forcefully taken from her family, and forced to go to the city of Susa where she's going to serve the king in his harem. How does she respond to a circumstance when her life is completely disrupted and upended by someone else's plans and, and purposes that are outside of her control? Well, Esther, we're told, is coming to, this, to the harem. Haggai's the one in charge of it. But she makes an impact on, her, on him. She finds favor with him. And notice it's not because of her beauty. It's not solely because of the outward beauty that she has. For all of these women were beautiful. There wasn't anything unique there. What set her apart was something about her character. Not her outer beauty, but her character. Something about her heart. Something about her decisions. Something about how she handled herself in a situation that was horrible, horrific, and tragic by all accounts. There was something about her character that set her apart from everyone else. And she found favor with Haggai. We're going to come back to that later in the story. There's something about Esther when uprooted and experiencing tragedy in her life, there's something about her approach to how she's going to respond to it that sets her apart and puts her different than the other people around her. The other people around her. She finds favor with Haggai. He puts her in the best area of the harem. He gives her some attendants to take care of her along the way. We pick up the story now back in, in Esther chapter 2, verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go before the king, Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to care for in the care of Shegsgaz. I have no idea how to say that name, by the way. Just whatever, just in full authenticity. I don't know how to say that. He's the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle Abihail, went to, to the king to go to the king. Sorry, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. 
She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence of the tenth month of the, of the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and dis distributed gifts with, with royal liberality. Now here we go. The women are prepared for this one night that they have with the king. All the perfumes, all the preparations, all for this one night. And again, there's something different about Esther. Had to be more than just outer beauty. It's, character, it's quality of character. And Xerxes is impressed with her. He's impressed with her more than anyone else, and he chooses her to be queen. And, he, and chooses her among all these women. He chooses her. There was something significantly different about Esther than all the others. And then the chapter ends with a kind of peculiar incident here. Verse 19, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when, she, when he was bringing her up. During the time of Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and to Big Thana, ah, that's a fun name, Terrace, two of the king's officials who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. That is not in VeggieTales, by the way. <laughs> and all this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. There's a plot against King Xerxes, plot to assassinate him. That's a pretty common, back in that day, that's a pretty common thing in the culture. But Mordecai hears about it, and he tells Esther, and Esther tells the king. The king finds out about it, and the plot is stopped, and, and, and everything's all good. And although Mordecai is given credit for it, for stopping the assassination attempt, he's never really rewarded for it. He's never really rewarded for it. And that sets up, actually, what we'll see in chapter 3 and the coming chapters. But in the time we've got left, in after chapter 2 here, I want to highlight a few things for us to consider. Some observations, things for us to kind of walk out with, to kind of think about what our own life as it goes from Esther chapter 2. Three things for us to consider this morning, and then I'll give you another assignment this week. So three things and one assignment. The first thing I want us to consider in chapter 2 is understand, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but the character-forming impact of mentoring. The character-forming impact of mentoring. Mordecai's relationship with Esther is clearly more than just a cultural obligation to care for your family who needs someone to care for them. He checked in on her. He cared for her. You notice that, that he walked in, uh, in the courtyard back and forth to check in on how she's doing in the harem. It wasn't just that he turned a blind eye, did the bare minimum, but he was walking after. He gave wise counsel to her. He, he walked with her. And this had this long-lasting effect because long after she becomes queen... She's still listening to Mordecai's advice. She's still listening to him. She's still following after him. He finds out about the plot against the, the assassination against King Xerxes. He goes and tells her, and she does something about it. There's this long-lasting effect, this character-shaping relationship of a mentor, someone older, to pour their life 
into her. And again, for those of you who are investing your life into a younger person, would you know that the investment that you make into their life is not just for today, it's not just for tomorrow, but you sitting and taking time to sit with a child who's having a difficult time at school and to hold their hand or to speak words into them or to help navigate those awkward adolescent years and to give them wise counsel or to help them as they're starting their family or a young adult and, and to help them understand the life's ups and downs and, and to walk with them through the life's challenges, it may indeed have a long-lasting effect in their life. Long-lasting effect. And if you would, just do a little thought experiment with me. Think back on your own life. Think about whose words of wisdom you still think about. Think about the person that when you were 10, 11, or 12, or 18 spoke words of wisdom in you and you still hold on to those words of wisdom. You still hold on to that person who poured their life into you. The character-shaping notion of mentoring is long-lasting. It's not just a one- or two-year thing. It lasts for a long time, sometimes for our entire life. We've been shaped by mentors. And so, if, again, for those of you who are pouring your life into the young people and the young adults around in our community, would you know that your impact on their life is not just for the temporary, for the short term, but it's for the long term, for the long term. But I also want you to know something else about mentoring, that mentoring and the mentoring relationship is a two-way street. There's a two-way road here because Mordecai cares for Esther. He's mentoring her. He's giving her godly wisdom. He's, he's, caring, he's walking with her. He's doing all those things. But Esther, Esther has to remain teachable and moldable. In some ways, in shape, when we, we would call that coachable, right? Esther has to remain teachable. She's not so captivated by her own opinion that she can't listen to and can't learn from someone else. She remains humble enough to be teachable by her mentor. Humble enough to receive the wisdom, to to follow the advice, to not just think she knows best. And when I look at the landscape of our culture, I just take take a scan around our culture and I think about what's going on in our world. Many in our day have lost the ability to be teachable to be moldable, to be humble enough. Because we think, or at least we behave as though we think, that we know all that there is about any subject that you want. And we argue with everybody else who may have a different of opinion than on whatever the situation is because we believe or we behave as though we believe that we have all the information, that we've got perfect knowledge, that we've got everything. We've lost the ability to be teachable and to be humble can I suggest for a moment that before we do the, the nasty pointing the finger about those guys out there, that we remember that none of, our, none of us are immune to that. None of us are, and myself included. We need to remain teachable, moldable, to be able to learn from God, to be able to learn from godly people. We need to be teachable people, not so caught up in our own ways of thinking that we neglect the godly wisdom that God is bringing to us. Can I suggest that one of the ways we grow in our life with God, one of the ways in which we grow in our spiritual life is that we remain teachable. That we humbly ask God and we say, God, I am willing to be taught by you. Which means I'm willing to acknowledge 
I may be wrong. I may be wrong. Can I suggest as I look at our culture that we learn and we continue to be reminded that we may be wrong. We'd be willing to be taught by God and by godly people. Second thing I want us to consider and observe in Esther chapter 2 is this phrase I heard once. I don't know where they found it, but I think it's really great. It's the phrase of redemptive providence of God. The redemptive providence of God. Friends, this chapter is full of bad things happening. Full of it. Mordecai, I told you we'd come back to this later, but Mordecai, we're told, is a descendant of the exile. With the people of Israel, a dark period of the people of Israel in their, in their history where they are taken captive and sent into exile by Nebuchadnezzar and they're brought into Babylon and they're brought into exile. It's a dark part of their history. And it, they're taken from their land and we're told that Mordecai is a descendant. His ancestors were, were exiled. They were taken from their land. It's a horrible part of their history. Esther, we're told, is an orphan and to grow up without parents is a horrible tragedy, both in the ancient culture and today. To grow up as an orphan is a, is a bad thing that's going on. And she's not only going to be an orphan, but she's going to experience her own part of exile, where she is ripped forcefully away from her loving cousin and to go into the king's harem. She, she experiences her own exile, as it were, and she loses again. And then the chapter ends with Mordecai, who stops the assassination on King Xerxes. He stops it, and rather than being being recognized and being rewarded for that, it goes largely unnoticed and forgotten. It goes largely unnoticed and forgotten. This chapter is just dripping with bad things happening, both to Mordecai and to Esther. And yet at the same time, we talked about this earlier last week, At the same time, you begin to see the invisible hand of God somehow working behind the scene to bring about good. To bring about good. See, although Mordecai's ancestors were exiled, and although they were taken from their land, the exile placed him in a position where he would be able to influence the destiny of the Jewish people. And while Esther was an orphan... Being an orphan brought her into a relationship with her cousin who was able to give godly wisdom and godly counsel and shaped her through mentoring that would provide strength and probably the, the depth of character that would be beneficial for where she was going to be. And though Esther was going to experience her own sort of exile where she was going to be uprooted from her family and brought into the king's harem, forcefully taken to the palace, she would eventually become the queen of the entire Persian Empire. The entire entire world in that deal. She was queen. And while Mordecai stopped the assassination attempt on King Xerxes, and while that largely would have gone forgotten and he doesn't get rewarded by it, the fact that it was forgotten is the place and the way that the whole story pivots and changes in just a few chapters. The whole issue that it was forgotten is the, is the pivotal point in the story where things change. And just a little chapters from here. So what we see in the lives, in the real life of Esther and Mordecai is the truth of God's invisible hand working behind the scenes for what we would call his redemptive providence at work in the lives of both Esther and Mordecai. The providence of God is God's ability to work behind the scenes to bring about his good intended purposes. The providence of God is God's ability to work behind the scenes to bring about his good intended purposes. 
And the redemption, or God's redemption, is his ability to reach into bad situations, horrific and ugly situations, and through his power and through his grace to be able to turn them into something good. Into something good. And if you take those together, God's redemptive providence is his ability to work behind the scenes and reaching into horrific, tragic, horrible situations, ugly situations, and through his power, through his grace, to turn them into something good in his intended purposes. His redemptive providence. And so a proper understanding of God's redemptive providence would remind us of a deep, essential truth that we need to know about God, and that is God is a good God. And that God does not intend harm on us, but his redemptive providence works behind the scenes in horrific, tragic, ugly situations to bring about his good intended purposes. And in our broken and fallen and horrible world, bad things are happening all around us. And yet God remains at work behind the scenes through his power, through his grace to transform that which is horrible into something that is good. To something that is good. If we allow him to. If we allow him to. Which is the third thing I want us to observe in this story. And that's the power of personal responsibility. The power of personal responsibility. See, some people hear this conversation about God's providence or about God's redemptive providence, and they assume that we don't have to do anything. That God's going to do what God's going to do, and he's going to work it all out, and I don't have to do anything. I just kind of sit back and watch. And while God is always working behind the scenes, we have the responsibility to work with and to cooperate with God in that work. We have the responsibility to cooperate with God. We see it in Mordecai and we see it in Esther. Mordecai sees his young cousin Esther and she sees the place that she's at as an orphan without her father, without her mother. And he chooses to cooperate with the work of God to not only do the bare minimum the culture required, but to step in and to raise her, to mentor her, to care for her, to walk with her all throughout her life. And it's not doing the bare minimum, not turning a blind eye, not just doing a little bit, but he walks towards her. He had to choose to take personal responsibility. But you also see it in Esther. Instead of playing a victim card, instead of him drawing her head down and kind of and sulking in all the circumstances and all the horrific things that are happening to her, she takes the initiative to make the opportunity to make a favorable impression on Haggai and on Xerxes and everyone else that she encountered. And again, it's not her outer beauty, it's the quality of her character. Her response to horrific experiences and horrific situations around her set her apart from other people. She lived distinctively different than everybody else that was experiencing the same kind of horrific, the same kind of understanding, the same kind of issues that were surrounding them. She pushed against the the temptation to be bitter and to be angry and to seek retaliation. And regardless of any tragic events that surrounded her, she refused the path that everyone else was going. And she prioritized the greatest commandment of loving God and loving people. And God, I think, it seems to me that God's redemptive purposes teams up with their personal responsibility and creates a place, a, an atmosphere, an environment where healing and good can come out of very tragic and horrific circumstances. God's redemptive providence teams up with their personal responsibility to create an environment where good and healing and, and restorative things can come out of horrific and tragic circumstances. 
And it just seems to me as I look at our culture and look at our, our world at large, the church needs more people like Esther. The church needs more people who will refuse to play the game of bitterness. The church needs people like Esther who refuse to play the game of retaliation. People like Esther who refuse the road of anger, but instead choose the path of initiating and following and the caring and the prioritizing love of God and love of neighbor. And we need to take responsibility to learn to prioritize those regardless of living in a world that is run by ethics that are contrary to the will of God. That we prioritize loving God and loving neighbor. And all the while, when we do in our personal responsibility, we are praying that our personal responsibility meets up with God's redemptive providence, and in the midst of it, we will see what currently we are seeing, and the horrible issues that are in our, in our culture, in our day-to-day, will be transformed by God into something that is good. Something that is good. But we need to do some things, because I fear that we are people that are so caught up, and we are no different than people around us. And while we experience all the difficult and the horrendous and the tragic things and the things that are happening and upending our life from one thing or another, we are choosing the road of bitterness and anger and retaliation and all the other. And yet Esther sets as an example for us to, to choose a better way, to choose the way of loving God and loving others and to set us apart from the ways in which the world is living that sets us apart from the response. There was something different about her character. There's a quality in her character that set Esther apart from everybody else. And friends, I just believe that it is the church's responsibility to be set apart, that there ought to be something different in our character, that we respond to the upending world that we live in that is distinctively different than the response that people outside the church have. So a few things to consider as you look at Esther chapter 2. Now let me give you the assignment this week. Assignment this week is the same assignment as last week. Read the book. The whole book. If you read it last week and you say, Brag, I just read it. It doesn't matter. Read it again. There's something formative about reading the Scripture. And not just once, but to let it wash over you. And as you read through Esther, chapters 1 through 10, then keep these considerations in your mind. Think about the role of mentoring that happened in that story and how it impacts your story. Think about God's redemptive providence in the story and how you see his redemptive providence in your life. Think about personal responsibility and your desire to be a personal, of taking personal responsibility in your own life. Read Esther, chapter 1 through 10, this week. Now we decided, or we said last week, and we'll do this this week and the weeks to come, that we're going to end our services with a time of quiet reflection and confession. And confession can seem uh, uneasy and uncomfortable at times, and that's true. But if we're going to take any growth in the spiritual life, confession is needed. Needed. Where we acknowledge where we have missed the mark and we confess that before God. Now, last week we looked at the person of Vashti and her commitment to integrity. Well, this week we're going to look at Esther and the quality of her character, the desire to learn to live by an ethic of loving God and loving others. 
and to push against the wave of a culture that responds negatively and harshly and with bitterness and anger and retaliation. We look at Esther. So I'm going to invite you in just a few moments to just reflect back on your week or maybe in the last couple of weeks and to ask yourself, has, has your life and your relationships, has it been marked by a, a, a commitment to love God and love neighbor? Or have you allowed the wave of our culture to influence you, to, to respond just as angry, just as bitter, just as pessimistic as others? Or is there something distinctively different in how you respond to the situations at hand? And just have a moment of quiet reflection. And as you see moments where you have responded in ways that are, that are contrary to the way that God would have you respond, just, just confess that. Quietly in your own heart, just say, God, I confess I, I was angry here. I was bitter here. I, I sought retaliation here. Just in your own quietness, your own heart, do that. And then we'll, we'll finish all the service. So let's take a moment of quiet reflection.